Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Elise Lunen here, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. My guest today is Sarah Hurwitz. She's one of those amazing people you feel like you've known your whole life. But before we get into our conversation, I want to give a quick shout out to our friends at Hourglass Cosmetics who helped make today's episode possible. Putting on a face full of makeup isn't among my highest priorities, but when I do need to polish up, I try to use makeup that meets a high standard. Hourglass Cosmetics was founded in 2004 as an innovative cosmetic brand committed to being 100% cruelty-free. They operate from a place of integrity to this day. Hourglass also has a handful of clean products, which our team was excited to stock in the Goop shop, including an ultra-precise brow pencil that has gotten some major airtime at the office water cooler. You can find select Hourglass products on Goop or head to their site at hourglasscosmetics.com goop. When there, use code goop for free expedited shipping on your order. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Sarah Hurwitz is a speechwriter, and not just any speechwriter. She wrote for First Lady Michelle Obama. I can't say I'm not a little envious. Sarah is also the author of Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism. I've recently begun to rediscover what it means for me to be Jewish, so I devoured this book. Sarah and I talk about the laws and principles of Judaism that can apply to us all. We talk about what it means to live truthfully among others, everything from the importance of avoiding gossip to honoring those in mourning. And after all that, I got her to tell us a little bit about the tenets of making a good speech, because I had to. Our central metaphor is partnership, that like we as human beings have tremendous responsibility to kind of bring the divine down to earth. It's not about 
submission or obedience, you know, so much as it is about partnership, as it is about doing our part. Okay, let's get to my conversation with Sarah Hurwitz. I approach your book with a little bit of fear just to be completely transparent. Uh And then I power read it. And I, it's funny, I grew up in Montana. My dad is Jewish. My mother is a lapsed Catholic, to put it lightly. (laughs) She she hates organized religion of any kind. (laughs) And my dad is South Africa, but his parents, his father was German. His mother's Polish. They both fled to South Africa in the 30s. Wow. My real last name is Lowenstein. <gasps> no I have way. a fake last name, yeah. Wow. My, my grandfather was an actor who couldn't get any work, so he changed his name. Wow. My, I think my grandmother's maiden name was actually Lipkovich when they came to the country and they changed it to Lipman. Yeah. Which also still pretty Jewish. Still so pretty like, Jewish. You know, they... Yeah. So I have an invented last name. But so I went to – growing up in Montana, there was a very, very small Jewish community. We went to services at a Methodist church who let us use their space. <laughs> and we had a female rabbi from California who would fly in maybe once a month, which wow. was very progressive. That's amazing. Yeah. And then – Similar to you, although your story is obviously slightly different and you're fully Jewish, when I learned probably as a tween, I don't remember who broke the news to me that I wasn't actually Jewish because my mom is not Jewish. See, that's that's a matter of debate. The reform movement actually says you are Jewish. Right. That if, you're, if one parent is Jewish, you're Jewish. And, and that's what I believe. Yeah. I, you know what? I, like – I think if you want to be Jewish and you feel Jewish, you're Jewish. I know. Like, I don't. I don't buy all these distinctions about your mother, your father. You know, back in the like two thousand years ago, it was actually through the father that Judaism was passed. Right. It changed through the mother. I think you're Jewish. You're well, part of the family, girl. Thanks, Sarah. Like, come on. But, but I had sort of an allergic reaction to that because it yeah. it felt sexist, and I was like, "What do you mean?" So now I need to go and convert, yeah. and so I bailed. Yeah. And so it was very interesting reading your book because whenever anyone asks me, I obviously caveat it like crazy. I'm not really Jewish, blah, blah, blah. And so I just last night texted a friend who is Jewish. He's gay. He has two adopted African-American sons. And I was like, do you go to temple? And he said, that is so weird. He just texted me. I just started going. Do you want to take the boys to Yom Kippur? So. I'm going. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. And I am like, this is, I haven't done this in 30 years. So and I have to say, just to be totally transparent, like, the synagogue services are not our most accessible work. I just, I like, I think that's a hard, that's a tough starting point. It, some people, it's like really their jam, and that's great for a lot of people, including me. It's a little bit of a, you know, it, it's yeah. a lot. It's a lot, but it's a, it's a great. You know what? See, see how it goes. Where are you going? To the one in the massive one in Bel Air. That's really v- incredibly reformed. They do gay marriage. He just sent me the tickets. I can't remember. I'll have to look. Sure, it'll be great. But yeah, it was more, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. Of course, my husband was like, wait, 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 what? Like, can we talk about this? <laughs> I was it's like, you don't so understand. Funny. I sent him the, like the longest text message about <laughs> culturally what it means to be Jewish and how in reading your book, I found explanations for my own behavior that were deeply comforting. And I was like, this is where some of the values that I'm aware of, but I've never been able to place, come from. It's so funny. I felt that way too, writing the book, where like, 
you know, it was more of a recognition mm-hmm. than a learning something new where I would sort of recognize like, oh, wait, those are my most deeply held values, but this is articulated in a much more profound way. Yeah. It's like a higher bar. It's clearer, but it's like things that really resonated with me as a human being. Yeah. You know, I was very I – mean, I think the core Jewish idea that is in our core Jewish text, the Torah, that we're all created in the image of God, which like you can be an atheist. doesn't. You don't have to believe in a God to see the power of that, right? It means that we are all infinitely worthy. This, there's a rabbi named Yitz Greenberg who interprets that as meaning that we are all infinitely worthy. We're all totally equal. We are all fundamentally unique. And Yitz Greenberg calls those the three inalienable dignities, yeah. right? And it's like that is such a profound animating idea for so much of what I was doing in politics. And you can say like, oh, that's so obvious. Of course. But like it's not obvious. Mm-mm. How many of us have walked by someone on the street who's asked us for help and we've been like, oh, I'm sorry, not today. What if that person had been Barack Obama or some celebrity? Of course we would have stopped. Why is that? Well, it's because we don't actually think that everyone is equally worthy and equal to each other and unique, right? We grade people differently based on their status and their wealth. And Judaism says, no, 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 no. That person who's struggling on the street is just as worthy and equal and unique as Barack Obama. And that is a profound and countercultural insight that, you know, it was radical back 2,500 years ago when it was first articulated. And it's still really radical today. Yeah, and I love sort of the the lineage that you trace and the history that you trace for Jews, the fact that we were slaves, emancipated slaves, that were our history is marked by these, I think you call them crashes, right? Yeah. This um, is a Rabbi B'nai Lappi, that's yeah. her term, yeah. Whether it's the Holocaust or our originally fleeing from Egypt when all Jewish babies were being <laughs> slaughtered, right? Israelites were enslaved, but that that's sort of the, the the backbone of the religion and the culture, and then that's why so many social justice moments and movements and, and movers are typically Jewish, that this is sort of the framework of our lives. Exactly. I mean, if you if you read the Torah, it's about like, you know, it's a story, and I don't, I don't think it's, you know, I don't take it literally, I don't think it's, you know, sort of historical in any way, but it is the founding story of the Jewish people, and it's about... This group of, you know, people who were enslaved, who escaped, and the, in the story, the God, like, sort of supports these people, right? And, like, this is a God who loves the weak, you know, and cares about the weak and the vulnerable. And throughout the Torah, this God is saying you have to care for the vulnerable, mm-hmm. right? The poor, the widow, the orphan, the stranger. Which, by the way, the term stranger, basically, you can understand it as someone who is, like, not part of your crowd, that not someone who is not an Israelite, right? Someone who's not part of the in-group, a refugee, an immigrant, like— this is the story of the Torah. And so it makes total sense that throughout history, Jews have been so concerned about the rights of minorities and those who are struggling, right? That is just so essential to our founding story. And I I love, you know, looking at all these social justice organizations and just, you know, meeting all these people who are like, oh, I'm Jewish and this is part of my Judaism. I just Mm -hmm. think it's really inspiring. Yeah. And that that is part of the religion, right? Yeah, very much. It's, it's, that it is embodied in that sort of action. It's not just like a trope, like, oh, do unto others as you would unto yourself, but it is like part of the practice of the religion. Exactly. And you just put your finger on something that is so essentially Jewish, right? Where it's like, you know, Judaism doesn't just say like, help those who are struggling, you know, be kind. It goes deep in, I mean, like Jewish law is super specific about how exactly you help people who are struggling. It has very specific laws. Like, 
you know, you like I, I remember studying one law that was like if you run into someone to whom you've given a loan and like you, you see them when you're walking down the street and you know they actually can't afford to pay you. You should try to avoid them because you don't want to embarrass them or, or stress them out. Mm-hmm. Really? That's so in the weeds, right? It's so specific, but it's also – it's so loving and humane, right? It's like you thinking like, wow, I don't want to hurt that person, right? I know that person's having a tough time. I don't want to embarrass them. Like, you know, and Judaism goes into all this very specific detail, contemplating all these situations that might come up in your life and telling you, okay – Here's the kind thing to do. Here's the loving thing to do. Right. And so just because this was all actually incredibly I, – I didn't realize a vast majority of what was in your book. So, that you know, I, I know with the Torahs and then the Talmud is the sort of the, the rabbis interpreting the Torah over the course of – millennia, I guess. And like that it is an evolving document. And rabbis continue. Like part of being Jewish is like the arguing over how laws should be interpreted and modernized. And so it continues to – it's a religion that continues to evolve. Continues to evolve. It's just like the Constitution, right? Like we don't live by an original version of the Constitution. Thank goodness. That was – you know, Mm -hmm. it was horrifying, right? Allowed slavery. Women couldn't vote. Like we have continued to reinterpret and re-understand the Constitution. So when people – read the Torah, which is the first five books of what Christians call the Old Testament, they're like, it's sexist and it's violent. Like, of course it is. It's a 2,500-year-old document. But we've spent 2,500 years reimagining it, which is why in the kind of Judaism that 90% of American Jews practice, women are rabbis, mm-hmm. right? Gay people are rabbis. We perform gay marriages, right? Like, it is a very progressive, inclusive, welcoming community because we've continued to reimagine and reinterpret our texts, right, which is exactly what we've done with the Constitution. And I think that's so amazing because it's not about dogma, right? right? It is a constant debate, and it's up to us as Jews to, like, learn deeply, study these texts for ourselves, and make an argument, right? right? And that's that's what Jews have done. Lots of, lots of arguments, lots of questioning. Yeah, I really – I love it. Yeah. And I guess in, in the context of things that I think are misunderstood, too, about Judaism that was clarifying for me within the book, do you mind if I read you yeah, something? Please. Okay. So this idea of Jews as chosen people. Yeah. So that always made me deeply uncomfortable because it does, you know, it feels like an othering or that we perceive ourselves to be. But you explain that chosenness should never be understood as a declaration of Jewish superiority or a statement that Jews have a monopoly on religious truth. Quite the contrary. Judaism asserts that there is one God who loves and cares for all of humanity. And while Jews have a particular relationship with that God, we recognize that others also have their own relationships with the divine. Jews do not feel the need to convert people to Judaism because we do not think that others need to act and believe like we do to be saved or morally acceptable. Exactly. And this is something that I love about Judaism, right? Like, you know, I think every religious tradition says we have this special relationship with the divine and here's how we experience it and embody it, right? That's great. And each of that, I think every world religion offers profound moral wisdom and we should learn about all of them, right? But I don't think, you know, we're certainly not saying we're better, right? right. This is why, like, you know, we don't, like Jews don't proselytize, right? We really, I, we very much think like, you know, we're going to do us, you're going to do you, you're fine how you are. If you'd like to come in, you're welcome, of course, right? We, we're happen, happy to welcome people who want to become Jews. But, you know, we don't think anyone needs to worship or, you know, practice as we do because that's, you know, we don't have a monopoly on the truth. Right. Mm-hmm. No, and I loved that clarification because it's, it's something that always sort of st- stuck in my craw or like seemed yeah. like something that, that felt rude. Yeah. And, you know, look, 
is that do you see that concept historically in Judaism? Of course. You know, you're talking about a tiny minority of people who are terribly persecuted and who are kind of, you know, trying to give themselves some comfort and assurance, right? That makes total sense. But like, you know, my understanding, and I think modern Jews' understanding of that term is not that we're superior or anything like that, right? That's just, <laughs> just like I actually think a better term, and you see a lot of people saying this, is that we're the choosing people. Mm-hmm. Where today nobody has to be Jewish, right? I don't live in an insular Jewish community where anyone would notice if I just decided to stop being Jewish. We all make a decision to choose whether to practice Judaism, whether to embrace it. And I think that's the more important point, right? Mm-hmm. And I I think that there's so much in Judaism that so many people, you know, both Jews and people interested and curious about Judaism, there's so much that people would be moved by and love and would choose. And that's that's what you have to do, right? You yeah. have to decide to do this. Well, and it is, and it is as you mentioned, sort of a, a precursor to Christianity. Jesus was a Jew. Yeah. Uh, Jews don't think that he was the Messiah. And it's all essentially, it seems like, as I've come to learn more about religions and I'm on the starting block. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Welcome. As we probably all, many of us are. I mean, I feel like I'm still on the starting block, yeah. even having written a whole book about <laughs> Judaism, right? You can spend a million lifetimes learning about Judaism and yeah. still have so much more to learn. Totally. But essentially, it's all religions, or most religions, seem to come back to some of the, the very same things. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, this divine spark is inside, whether you're talking about... Buddhism or Hinduism or um, Judaism that that you know that there is it is an inward search and that there's not necessarily some outward deity judging us in the sky and that I thought it was I didn't realize that meditation and all of these other you know many of which are Eastern are all parts of Judaism as well yeah there is a meditation tradition in Judaism which I just think is amazing. It goes way back. There are scholars who've traced this. And there's an entire Jewish meditation community in the U.S. and around the world that I'm part of. I attend week-long silent Jewish meditation retreats. They're probably similar to like a a Buddhist or a secular Mm -hmm. retreat. But, you know, we do Jewish prayer. They're led by rabbis. The talks are not on the Dharma. They're on Jewish texts. Right. And they're very, I find them to be very moving experiences. And I think that you're right. Like, you know, ultimately, I do think each of the each religion is getting at the same kind of core things, but we all do it through these very different ways, right? And I think sometimes, you know, one of the sort of hesitations I have about more like new age spirituality is it's like it's like oh, it's all about like you know seeking out these highs and going on the mountaintop and you know communing with the universe and like that's great. I'm totally into that stuff, but like it's not just about self-discovery and self-expression and self-affirmation, right? I think what's sometimes missing today is the self-discipline, self-restraint, self-transcendence. Like, you know, when you're out there communing with the universe on the mountaintop, does the universe speak back to you and say like, hey, have you visited people who are sick? Mm-hmm. Have you spent time helping those who are struggling? Like, have you are you careful about how you use your speech and how you treat others, right? Like, the universe often doesn't really talk back to demand anything. And I think that's what's missing in a lot of kind of the more like, oh, I'm going to go find myself spirituality, right? I think there is a, an important part of religion that actually pushes us to be better people. Yeah, no, I love that idea. And I think that that's true. It's this, it's sort of the both, right? Like yeah. having that communion with God or force or the universe or 
the eternal being or whatever yeah. you want to call Love it. Love all of his names. God yeah. is just, God, I, I don't, God feels like a man in the sky to me. Right? Me that, too. That makes me uncomfortable. So I like like the divine, Yeah, you know, just something big. I like the universe. Yeah. But I agree. I think sometimes too, it seems like people are looking for, you know, that hit, which I, which I also want and that, which, <laughs> you know, maybe that's intuition, but also affirmation sometimes. I think I love this. You talk about Anne Lamott. And this quote, who attributes it to her priest friend, when you're talking about how the Torah tells us that we create, we are created in the divine image, not the other way around, that we shouldn't be trying to, you know, make the divine human. And and Anne says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Right? (laughs) This is just, you know, whenever I hear people saying... God wants this. God thinks this. God's going to do this to you. It's like, I don't know what you're talking about, but it's certainly not God. Right? right? Like anything that you with, you know, that we with our tiny little human minds think we know about the divine, about this ma- this just in- unfathomable, infinite, massive thing, I think we got to be very careful about that. Right? I think that really does become us just projecting our own views and deciding, oh, that's mm-hmm. what God wants, right? Like, we don't know. This is something very big. And every religious tradition, you know, has some sort of has a story about what they think that divine wants, and it's refined over centuries, and that's great. But I think there really needs to be some humility mm-hmm. about this, right? And something I love in Judaism is that, like, our core metaphor is about partnership, right? Like, reading the story of the Torah, it's like, you know, God comes to the Israelites on a mountain and is like, listen, I want to form a covenant with you which is essentially a contract. And God's like, here are the terms. Do you guys accept this? The Israelites listen to the terms. They're like, all right, Ten Commandments, bunch of rules about ethics, sacrifices, whatever. Yeah, we accept it. Right? And our, so our, our central metaphor is partnership, that like we as human beings have tremendous responsibility to kind of bring the divine down to earth. It's not about submission or obedience you know, so much as it is about partnership, as it mm-hmm. is about doing our part. Jewish spirituality is really about like, it's very much about acting. Yeah. So, like, you know, when I treat another human being kindly, like, that is seen as a spiritual act, right? Mm-hmm. I'm bringing the divine down to earth. When I help someone in need, when I decide not to share a piece of gossip, right, that is a moment when I am connecting with the divine in Judaism, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's a spiritual moment. That's a little counterintuitive. It is. Right? It, it's an embodied religion, yeah. which I think is very different like, for all those reasons rather than – acting in accordance with this idea of heaven or um, some version of an afterlife where you will have assurance of gaining entrance by, I guess, placating God in whatever way that means. But I feel like there's a certain physical accountability, at least as described in the pages of your book, (laughs) that I think is so helpful. And it's, let's talk about evil tongue, right? Because I think that that's so human and obviously... I think I don't know anyone who probably doesn't struggle with it. And then beyond evil tongue, the idea too of can you explain what stealing the mind means? Yeah. So evil tongue is a that's a translation of this term Lashon Hara, which means it basically means like speaking speaking bad things about other people, like gossip, right? And and Judaism is like there's so much there's so much writing and thinking about how you use your words. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, with gossip, it's like you know, I, I used to think, like, gossip is harmless, right? It's fun. We all do it. It's fine. But you know, studying it in Judaism, I realized, like, if you and I are colleagues and we get into some big fight, I'm just so mad at you. 
And I go and I complain to like 10 people and I'm like, she is bad at her job. She's lazy. She's dishonest. I just trash you because I'm so mad. And then the next day, come back to work and we make up. Like, right. so sorry. We had a fight. Our, you know, we, we apologize. Well, I've just told a lot of people about how terrible you are. And what if those people told a bunch of other people? Mm-hmm. And what if like a month from now you apply for a job and, oh, wow, the HR person at one of the companies where one of those people who was told about you works, they get your resume and they're like, mm, I remember something about this woman. You know, I just, I'm not sure. Right? Like you can do some real damage. And I also – the stealing of the mind, which you mentioned, is another – it's another way of thinking about speech, which I had never considered – and basically, it means sort of deceiving someone into thinking that you've given them something of value when you really haven't. So an example would be, again, let's say we're colleagues, and I'm having a housewarming party, and I'm inviting everyone in the office, but I just don't like you. And I just – I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to invite her. I don't like her. I will just deal with that. If it makes her mad, fine. But then you tell me, oh, I'm going on vacation for the next few weeks. And I'm like, oh, wait a second. She's not going to be here from my party. And so I'm like, oh, great. I'm having a party. I'd love for you to come. Right? I used I do that all the time. Right? And mm-hmm. I felt like, that's fine. Right? Win-win. Right? You feel good. I, like, everybody wins. But actually, Jewish law says, no, you've actually deceived your colleague. Right? You've made her think that you wanted her at the party, which you didn't. You've made her think you've given her something of value. She now feels indebted to you unfairly. Right? And I just thought, wow, that is a really subtle ethic. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Well, and it requires just sort of a certain stepping up in life, right, to own your feelings, yes. work it out directly with the person. Exactly. And not deceive them. Right. Right? Not to see, like not make them feel indebted to you when they really aren't. Right. right? That's sort of, it's deceptive. And I just thought – or like another example of this is if I'm a store owner and I just have a bunch of overstocked inventory – that I need to get rid of. And I tell – but I say to all my customers, oh, I'm giving you a deal because, you know, the economy is tough now and I really want to help you. That's not why I'm, I'm giving them this deal. But now they feel so indebted to me. They feel grateful. But I lied to them. Right. right? And that's just – you know, it's subtle. It's not – when you're a kid, people say, like, don't lie, cheat, or steal. Be nice to others. This is a lot more sophisticated than that. We'll get back to Sarah Hurwitz in just a second. Barely There Makeup is a staple of our beauty editors, Jean Godfrey-June and Megan O'Neill. They wrote a story this fall, The Prettiest No Makeup Makeup, in partnership with Hourglass Cosmetics. It outlines six steps to a polished, understated look that requires minimal effort and minimal skill, which is ideal for me. Hourglass Cosmetics makes a few clean products, which are featured in the story, like their microsculpting brow pencil, a translucent setting powder, and a clear lip treatment oil for a little bit of a glossy sheen. But what makes Hourglass Cosmetics a notable brand is the stance that they've taken on cruelty-free beauty. In 2004, founder Carissa Jane saw a gap in the beauty market, and she became committed to reinventing luxury cosmetics while seeing eye-to-eye with animals. And because of that, Hourglass works at an interesting intersection of science, beauty, and luxury. Also, for our vegan listeners, aside from being totally cruelty-free, Hourglass is on a mission to make all of their products 100% vegan in 2020, so they are currently in the process of reformulating non-vegan products to exclude animal-derived ingredients, like beeswax and carmine. FYI, if you're looking at the Goop Beauty story, all of those Hourglass products are vegan-approved. And if you head to their site at hourglasscosmetics.com goop and enter code goop, you'll get free expedited shipping on your order. 
Every once in a while, I moonlight on other podcasts, and I was really honored to be a guest on Sophia Bush's new podcast called Work in Progress. Sophia is a powerhouse multi-hyphenate, and it's inspiring to see how she is using her platform to create conversation and change around important policy and social justice issues. And I just love listening to her. Sophia is frank, funny, personal, and wise. Her podcast is full of compelling conversations. She's talked to people like Katie Couric, Ilana Glazer, Karamo Brown, and Melina Abdullah, to name just a few. And somehow, I snuck in. Throughout the series, Sophia asked people about how they've gotten to where they are and where they think they're still going. The conversations are honest, sometimes political, and often inspiring. Case in point, Sophia's conversation with Gloria Steinem, who is a personal hero of mine, and of course, so many others. Work in Progress is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you'll tune in. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Back to my chat with Sarah. In going deep into Judaism, and I know that you, like, it's an imp- not an imperfect practice, but that you're yeah. not sort of like, oh, I'm I'm doing Shabbat every week, and I'm going to service all the time. <laughs> or um, it's very confusing for people because I wrote this book on Judaism, <laughs> so people are like, oh, so now you're Orthodox and you like keep kosher, right? And it's like, no, actually, I don't keep. You know, I don't eat pork or shellfish just to remind myself about my Judaism. But I don't – that's – those are two of many rules of keeping kosher. So I don't really have right. any kind of strict kosher practice. I don't observe Shabbat by not working and observing all the rules, right? I not very often in a synagogue, right? I go – synagogue, I go twice a year for the major holidays and sometimes it's Shabbat. But I think that, you know, what people seem to forget is like – Jewish law is both ethical and ritual, mm-hmm. right? And I've become much more observant of the Jewish ethical laws. Like I've become much more aware of them and much more, you know, aware of how much I fall short of them and how much I need to work. Like they're really top of mind for me and just, you know, I have a lot of work to do there. You know, I've, I haven't become more observant of ritual laws, but that doesn't mean I'm not observant. That doesn't mean I'm not a serious committed Jew, right? right. I think there are so many ways to be a serious committed Jew and it doesn't have to mean having a really strict ritual observance. Right. I liked, too, that you, you cited David Brooks in the book, but he refers to them as resume virtues rather than eulogy values. Yeah. Which are the ones that people talk about at the funeral. So it seems like, like in the practice of Judaism, it's that, right? It's yeah. less about those resume virtues and more about, like, was Sarah Hurwitz a good person. Yeah. And how did she express that? Exactly. I mean, I thought, you know, I really like that, like, resume versus eulogy virtues because the resume virtues are like, were you successful? Mm-hmm. Were you powerful? Were you wealthy? Did people know your name? Fine. 
But the eulogy virtues are like, were you loving? Were you kind? Did you care for your family, your community, right? It's the things that people really talk about at your funeral. It's the things that people truly remember you by. And I think that, you know, Judaism for me creates a space for those those values, right? Like I never, you know, like I loved working in the White House. It was amazing. And I'm so happy I did that. But that was only one part of life, right? I didn't sit around the office water cooler with my colleagues being like, what is this all about? Mm-hmm. You know, what does it mean to be a good person? What do you think about God, right? These bigger questions we don't answer in our secular lives. And I think that this is – that religion offers a space for contemplating these, you know, using the wisdom of thousands of years of people who have been wrestling with these things and grappling with these things, right? Yeah. This is so much thicker and richer than just like self-help culture or you-do-you culture, right? It is mm-hmm. like people thinking deeply about some of the biggest questions that animate our lives. And yeah. that's – important. It's interesting, too, to think about your work in politics. And I can only imagine the amount of sort of compromise or finding the middle or, you know, threading that needle, Mm -hmm. but also trying to maintain sort of your word, right? Like how it's such an interesting, it, it must have been such an interesting experience, you know, just like good um, what is the saying? Like, perfection is the enemy of good. Yeah. Right? Like, but needing, but wanting everything to be exactly how you think it should be in the context of, like, what you know will serve the most people. Yes. Versus, yes. like, what an interesting expression of it, right? And, like, where, particularly in the context of these quite strict Jewish laws, right? Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. Um man named... Joe, Joe Nye, who I think was dean at of the Kennedy School, which is the public service school at Harvard, he once said something to the effect of the absolutist may have may, the absolutist may avoid the problem of dirty hands, mm. but often at the cost of having no hands at all, which mm. I think is such a powerful phrase. You know, and I remember when we were trying to pass health care, you know, there were people who said it has to be single single payer. That's it. That's all we'll accept. It's either that or nothing. It's like okay. Well, we couldn't get single payer, right? That's But we got a system that covered 20 million people. So you're telling me that you want to sacrifice 20 million people to get your perfect thing. And I just, I reject that. Mm-hmm. You know, think about the amount of suffering that was alleviated by 20 million people being able to see a doctor, afford their medicines, get the help they needed. I mean, I just, the whole impulse to purity over doing the best you can, I reject it. I find it. It is the enemy of achieving anything. And right. I just reject it. But at the same time, there are also fundamental values you don't compromise on. Right. right. There, there are some lines you don't cross. And I, 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 that's important. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very happy with what we do in healthcare. That was yeah. great. No, so many, so many amazing things. And, and more importantly, even maybe than that, although I agree, 20 million people with healthcare isn't, <laughs> but the modeling of, what it means to be sort of a person of integrity and from both Obamas, you know, I think is so – such a profoundly valuable lesson for this country. Totally. I mean, working for so many years for Mrs. Obama, like she's just the most relentlessly authentic person I have ever met. You know, like I just felt like with every speech she was writing, with everything she did, she was always kind of stopping and asking herself, okay – what is the deepest and most important and most helpful truth that I can tell at this moment? Mm-hmm. Right? She was always uh, like stopping and asking, like, what is really true here? 
You know, like that was, it wasn't like what will make me sound smart or funny or powerful. It was like, what is deeply true? Yeah. And I just, I so admired her loyalty to her own truth, her refusal to kind of conform to other people's demands or expectations, right? And that, that first lady role, it's so public. Everyone has an opinion on it. There is a long line of people who've done it, and it's like, this is the way it's done. And, you know, just to see her say, okay, I appreciate that this is the way it's done, but you know what? That doesn't feel right to me, mm-hmm. right? Like when we have a fancy cultural event here at the White House, that's great. But I'm going to ask those performers to come earlier and do a workshop for kids from the community who would never get to go to the White House otherwise. I want them to feel like this is their house too. Mm. And that was just awesome. Yeah. You know, just you know. awesome. She certainly sort of did a makeover, I think, on what that role can mean. Yes. And uh, I miss her. I know. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. But going back to Judaism, yeah. I think – Two, it is that sort of the slog, right? Like the day in, day out work. I think it's interesting. I know at the end you talk about the afterlife and sort of the the Jewish view, which is doesn't seem like it's incredibly well defined in part because it doesn't seem like it's that considered. This is no. like earth school. This is Yeah. Oh, I love that earth school. That's yeah. a beautiful Yeah. I mean, this is the funny thing. Like I think my friends who are Christian find this very confusing, but like the afterlife is not our focus, right? You, right? you never hear Jews or rabbis saying, do this so that you can get into heaven. Like, that's just not part of our sensibility, right? We are here to do things because of what they mean here on earth, mm-hmm. right? It is, an, it is a this world, this moment, you know, this life-focused religion. And, you know, there is thinking about the afterlife, but it is very poorly defined. It's kind of vague. No one ever talks about it. Like, I don't think I have ever heard <laughs> – a rabbi give a sermon about what comes after we die. The focus is like, how are you going to live your life in a way that is kind and loving and honest and with integrity? Because those things are important right here and right now, not because of some thing that happens after you die. Right. I think, and I can't remember if this is a quote from you or a quote from a rabbi, but in talking about the quote is, we will recognize them because they will be clothed and cloaked in the good deeds we do in their name. That is a – it's a really beautiful. It's actually – that's not a quote from me. That is a – it's an old teaching. And the the question that was asked to prompt that answer was like when we die and we go into whatever this afterlife is, like how will we recognize our ancestors, right? Will they – Will they be? Will they look like they did when they died? Right? Will they be elderly? Will they be sick? Or you know, how will we know them? And the answer is, we'll recognize them because they will be clothed and cloaked in the good deeds that we did when we were alive. Right? Mm-hmm. Which I just find so beautiful and meaningful. Right? The idea that like our good deeds aren't getting us into heaven. It's like our good deeds are bringing honor to our ancestors. Right? Mm-hmm. Our good deeds are bringing beauty and honor and power to our tradition in the world. Right? right. That's just such an it's such a lovely way of thinking about how you act in the world. Yeah, no, and I, I think it's that that call within your book and I and I think for people who are Jewish or half Jewish like me. You are or, girl, you are Jewish. You are <laughs> so Jewish. You are wanna be Jewish. <laughs> but it is it's that idea too that transgenerationally we were we were all on that mountaintop. Yes. And that it is such a cultural physical religion that in a way to uh, to deny that part is to sort of deny everyone who came before you. And I, I feel not guilt per se, but I think about, you know, my family fleeing 
Germany and and Poland, and certainly that's part of my. I, I understand that as part of my history, but it also feels like not that they were necessarily so invested in me being a heavily participating Jew, but that it does feel like, ooh, I've kind of turned my back on something that's very important. Yes. I I so identify that because even when, you know, I grew up, you know, just being very cavalier about Judaism and thinking, oh, this is lame and I was disengaged, but it always felt a little bit wrong, right? There was something that always felt a little bit unsettled, like I was being kind of like cosmically ungrateful, right? It felt wrong, but I didn't know... I, I, I didn't I didn't know how to ignore it and I didn't know how to embrace it. So I just kind of – it just kind of like muddled along, right? And I think that's a common experience. But, you know, we all are part of this amazing chain, right? And that's – you know, Jewish tradition and history says that like every Jew was out Mount Sinai when God gave the Jewish people the Torah, right? Like every Jew. It says like you were there. I was there. People who convert to Judaism, their souls were there, right? Mm-hmm. Like – you know, the term convert doesn't really make sense in Judaism because once you convert to Judaism, you're just a Jew. There's no distinction between you and any other Jew. So I, yeah, you're part of this chain and it's, you know, I can never tell, I would never say to someone, you should be Jewish because Judaism's better than other religions. No, it's not. Mm -hmm. They all have moral wisdom. But I think the best argument that I've seen for why to be Jewish, in addition to just it being an extraordinary tradition, it's by this rabbi named Jonathan Sachs, who's a British rabbi. And he has this beautiful metaphor of a library. He's like, modern secular society is like a library. It has all these books with wisdom about how to live a good life. You can pick, you can choose, you can accept, you can reject. But one day you're in this library and you see a book and it's this old leather-bound book and it has your family's name on its spine. It's like I look up and it's like Hurwitz. like, what? And you pull the book off the shelf, you open it up, and you realize that actually the book is each generation of your family writing down the wisdom and insights and stories of their lives and how to be a good person. It's giving them advice for how to live. Mm-hmm. And it's generation after generation and you're like, oh, my great-grandmother said this and my grandfather felt this. And then you get to the last page, and it's blank, but it has your name at the top of it. Mm-hmm. Now, look, are you just going to kind of be like, oh, that's nice, put it back on the shelf? You're not. The wisdom in there isn't any better than the wisdom anywhere else, but it's your family's wisdom. Right. Right? And I think that's, for me, so much of what it means to be Jewish. You know, I, I love being Jewish, and I love Judaism because it has so much wisdom for how to be a good person and live a worthy life and find connection to whatever it is that you call the divine. But I also love it because it's my family's tradition. It's my story. Right. And it's and there aren't that many of us. It's, there aren't. There are 14 million Jews in the world compared to what, like, more than 2 billion Christians, 1.8 billion Muslims, right? 14 million. That is a tiny, tiny number. Yeah. Right? I love the statistic in one of your footnotes that while only 0.2% of the population, 22% of the Nobel Prize winners are Jewish. Yeah. Isn't that wild? Yeah. It's I mean, I think it comes from a tradition that really values debate and questioning and intellectualism, right? right. This is just – it's a tradition that so values learning. Yeah. Right? That, that phrase, people of the book, which actually sort of has a complicated history, but that idea that, like, we are all centered on these texts. And right. even if we practice differently, we're all talking about the same core texts. Yeah, and this idea that it is the word shima – to listen, to hear, to understand, to internalize, and to respond, the, that Hebrew doesn't have a word for obey. Yeah, that was Rabbi Jonathan Sachs pointed that out. And I think that is – it's so interesting, right? It's yeah. not like 
it's not just obey. It's like listen, internalize, understand, and act. Yeah. Right? That's sort of what's being asked of us. And I think, you know, so many Jews, like we just stop learning after our bar bat mitzvah. And that's just when you can start learning. Right. right. That's just when you can start learning the deep, radical, edgy wisdom that Judaism has to offer. Yeah. You know? No, absolutely. And it's also, you know, I know you you talk about how like Jews help create the NAACP. We were at the forefront of the labor movement during the summer for of the Freedom Rides. Two-thirds of the white people who participated were Jewish. Jews like Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan played seminal roles from in the feminist movement, and a Jew named Harvey Milk is a gay rights icon. Yeah. So what and, and obviously we have there's a long history of violence against Jews. And do you think that that just comes, is it part of this enduring mentality of of the way that it all began as slaves, as sort of an underclass or? You know, it's so interesting. Like, you know, every society needs an other. And yeah. I think Jews have always been a very obvious and convenient other, right? It's like, you know, in ancient times, pagans hated the Jews because they wouldn't perform their pagan rituals, right? There were issues with Christians later on because they Jews wouldn't be Christian. Like, well, you know, every – there's always – like, anti-Semitism, it always kind of morphs into whatever people want it to be, right? And so you, you see people today who say Jews are, like, defiling the white race. You say other people saying, no, 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 Jews are the ultimate white oppressors, right? It's like, mm-hmm. wait, how can those both be true, right? It's just it, – all of these things are, you know, Jews have been hated because they were too wealthy and because they were too poor. They've been hated because they were communists and because they were capitalists. You know, it's just like the – it kind of shows you how bankrupt this is because it's just – like these things can't all be true. But so it, it's so contradictory and just, you know, it's – anti-Semitism is – it's very enduring because we are always a tiny other. Again, mm-hmm. 14 million people, right? And we've existed in all these different societies. And it's just amazing to me that we have continued on, mm-hmm. right? It is amazing to me that we just haven't given up, that we've continued to practice these traditions. We've continued to, to embrace the wisdom of our traditions. And I, I am really moved by that. And so I feel like back when I was really disengaged, I just felt like, wow, I'm really – being disloyal to something that's very important, right? Like so many people sacrificed so much and so many of these traditions came such a long way to make it to me. Like who am I just to ditch them? Right. Right? Like, And there is so much sort of tactical day-to-day wisdom, whether it's evil tongue, sort of these very specific checks on very human instincts that we all do. Totally. To even just sitting Shiva and the space that that creates for mourning and for care. Yeah. And I loved, you know, obviously, I've gone to sit Shiva. I've sort of, I'm aware of it as a as a tradition. But the way that you sort of articulate all of the practicalities of it, too, like the reason that the mirrors are covered are so that you do not feel compelled to put on makeup or be concerned about the way you look while you're mourning, or that there is a, a rule that mourners must speak first to sort of eliminate all the platitudes or those horrible questions like, how are you? Right. And you're like, how the f- <laughs> do you think I am? Yeah. It's, like- <laughs> you know, this is like the Jewish morning rituals are so powerful because I think secular society, like someone you love dearly dies and people are like, okay, you know, move on. I'm sorry. You're fine. Go to work. Just be normal. And Judaism says, no, 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 no. 
-hmm. you're not going to be okay for a long time and that's okay, right? Like we are going to create this loving system that gradually walks you back into life. But like, you know, for seven days, you were just going to be out, right? You're going to sit in your house. People are going to come visit you. They're going to take care of you. Okay. Then for, you know, 30 days, you can get, you know, the restrictions come off a little bit. And then, but for a year, if it's a parent, you know, there are all these like things. And, you know, for the rest of your life, once a year, you say a yard site for the person. You do yard site, which is Yiddish for a year's time, but you do something special to honor their memory. And so Judaism understands that, like, when we lose someone, that loss is always with us, mm-hmm. right? There's just such a, a humanity. And, you know, you're right. Like, the idea of sitting shiva, which is – it's like there are all these rules about how to protect the mourner, mm-hmm. right? And how to just give the mourner the space to just lose it mm-hmm. and to just – to cry, to rage, to laugh, whatever they need to do. You know, the shiva is just – it's a seven-day space where people come and they just are with you, right? What, what's called for at a shiva is your presence, you come and you just are with the mourner in whatever they need. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. You are just there with them to support them. And I think it's just so loving. Yeah. Right? Like secular society, it's like, what are the grief rituals? Right. What, you know, how do you mourn? We don't even we don't even know. No, it's the most awkward and uncomfortable thing for exactly. people. And they don't know what to say. And so they often choose to say nothing at all. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And so I think the idea that that Jewish law has sort of can help people navigate that, whether yes. Jewish or not, right? Yeah. Like, this oh, is. T- I mean, I have actually uh, many friends who are not Jewish who loved my chapter on death because they're, you know, they were like, "Oh, this helps me process my loss." Right. Right. Like one of my friends, her who recently lost her father, very suddenly, she just said, "Like, I really, I wish I could have shiva." Mm-hmm. It's like I really need that space right now. Absolutely. Right, and that just wasn't. There wasn't a space. And I just I, – that – I think it's kind of heartbreaking. And I think, too, the idea that for 30 days or for 11 months that there is the sort of daily or twice daily prayer, but that it needs to be done in communion, yes. right? It's, this is like for, you know, this period of time, right? You are – you know, if you lost a parent, it's – right? It's like a, a year basically. You are saying this mourner's prayer called the Kaddish and it can't be said alone, right? Mm-hmm. You need to say it in what's called the minion, which is a group of 10 Jews. So it's like Judaism is – it's calling – it's sort of demanding that you be in community every day, twice a day. It's almost ensuring that you're looked after. Yeah. Right? It's ensuring that you don't drown in your grief or that – basically the Jewish approach to grief is like don't drown in it, don't deny it. Mm-hmm. Right? Those are our two impulses when dealing with grief. And Judaism says, OK, we're not going to let you drown in this. We're going to keep you in community. We're going to give you a structure. We're going to make sure you're held. But we're also going to make sure you don't deny it. Like you do have to, you know, twice a day, three times a day, acknowledge this loss, right? You can't just pretend it's not there. You can't kind of just compartmentalize it. You you do actually have to confront it every day and really feel it. And I just think it's so psychologically wise. Yeah. And then can we – will you quickly explain Shabbat? Because I think that it freaks people out. But <laughs> right. um, it used to – I mean I used to look at people who were very – religious observing Shabbat, and I just thought, like, all these rules, this is crazy. You can't use electricity. You can't work. No screens. I now think it is utterly brilliant Mm -hmm. because basically what Shabbat is, is it's a day day of rest every week from Friday evening to Saturday evening. And what you, you know, there are all, the reason why there are all those rules is because you're plugging up all of the nooks and crannies through which the everyday world threatens to seep, Mm -hmm. right? And you were saying, you know what? No. For this it's 25 hours, long story as to why, not 24, but it's 25 hours. I am going to be totally offline. I'm not going to answer 
work emails I am not going to buy, I am not going to produce, consume, spend. You know, the secular world is always saying you are not enough. You have to buy more. You have to spend more. You have to work harder. You, you aren't enough. You don't have enough. And we're always dissatisfied, right? We're always anxious. We're always on edge. And the whole message of Shabbat is the exact opposite. It is you are enough. You have enough. Take 25 hours and spend time with people you love and just be deeply grateful for your life. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so subversive, right, to say, no, boss, I'm not answering your emails for this day. No, Facebook, I'm not going to click on your ads. No, you know, all these like, you know, I'm not going to give in to all these ads that tell me that I am not thin enough, healthy enough, rich enough, successful enough. No. Mm-hmm. For 25 hours, I have enough. And that is just we need it so badly. Yeah. And when you actually spend – when I spend time with people who are very religious, it's like this beautiful container they create. It's There's no screens blaring. There's no appliances whirring. It is just this beautiful, quiet, lovely container. And everyone's so present. Yeah. No one's checking their phone. No one's walking out to take a call. Everyone's like in it and talking and laughing. And it is so beautiful. And the world goes on. The world goes on. And you know what? You get out and like – it turns out no one emailed you. It's yeah. like it's like you aren't that important. You aren't that important. <laughs> you're not. Yeah. It's like your office is still standing. Believe yeah. it or not, it is all still standing. So I can't let you go without asking you, what are the tenets of a good speech? Oh, love that question. <laughs> so I think, you know, a good speech, it really starts with the question, what is true? Mm-hmm. Right? It, get, it gets some deep truth. I think a good speech, it's like it involves talking like a human being. Don't do the jargon. Don't talk like a politician with like hardworking middle class American family dream value middle class. Like what? what? Just mm-hmm. you've never turned to your spouse and been like, honey, I just think the hardworking American middle class values of the American family dream. Like no one talks <laughs> like that, right? So just talk like a human being. Don't talk in sound bites. It's authentic. And finally, it's show don't tell. Mm-hmm. Paint pictures. Like give people a vivid image. Like. Mrs. Obama's 2016 convention speech, she didn't start by saying, I was so nervous when I came to the White House. I was scared. I was uneasy. I was anxious. She said, on my daughter's first day of school, they piled into these big cars with these men with guns and their little faces were pressed up against the window. Right? You feel her anxiety. You feel her fear. You see it. Like you're in it with her. So showing as opposed to telling, also very helpful. Those are my best tips. Okay. <laughs> and then do you the, – how did you work? Did you outline and then go in and fill in the details? It, it always started with Mrs. Obama. Right. We'd sit down with her and be like, what do you want to say? And she would just download, right? She would talk just beautiful language, ideas, stories, themes, quotes. And then I would take that and I would shape it into an outline, a draft. I would send it around to my colleagues. They would give me feedback. And then I would just go back and forth with her. She would edit I would edit her edit. She'd edit my edits. I mean, just back and forth. And you know, she was she was in it, right? Yeah. Like those speeches were were hers from start to finish. And she's just so good. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Sarah Hurwitz. Make sure to pick up a copy of her book here all along. Out now. I highly recommend it. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.